Welcome to Between the Vines. My name is Kevin Martin. I'm here with a special guest, Jason Lundo, Dr. Jason Lundo. And also here joining me today is Jennifer Phillips Russo. Uh, with Jason, we've got an opportunity to talk about bud cold hardiness. Uh, so far this winter, this is as good as it gets in terms of that being at the forefront. Uh, you know, I guess if you watch the news at all, regardless of where you're located, as long as it's in the US, uh, certain parts of our region have been making the news because it is very cold right now and it will get colder. Uh, a lot of that has to do with wind chill. So that's what's making the headlines and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, but uh, without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to these two so we can get rolling on what's going on with cold hardiness. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for being here, Jason. So I have had a lot of growers contact me over the last couple of days because of this cold front that's coming in. We should just say for our growers who are listening that it is the beginning of February 2023 and there are very cold temps heading our way that are sweeping across the country, as Kevin mentioned. So growers obviously are concerned. Um, Dr. Londo and I are doing a lot of research with tracking cold hardiness in our regions, and we're going to let him talk a little bit about what he does with that information that we send to him, but that also allows us grow our growers to know approximately where their vines and certain varieties are hardy to so they can look at the weather that's coming in and make management decisions or worry or not worry to whether some of their buds will be damaged or not. So the very first question is, are the vines safe from injury given this weekend's potential low temperatures? Yeah, well, thanks for having me guys. Um, yeah, I would say that looking at the predicted lows uh, across uh, all our great growing regions and what the vines are performing at this year that we're probably fine. There's always the chance that there'll be some microclimate differences that creep in. But if you look broadly across Western New York and then the Finger Lakes region, our vines are, depending on the variety, are hardy well below the predicted lows. And so I wouldn't expect that we're gonna see much damage. Again, the caveat being, if you've got a vineyard planted in a bad air drainage area, uh, the temperatures could be lower than what we're seeing at the, the various weather stations. And so there's always potential for some localized damage. And we'll definitely know after this passes, based on our monitoring, whether or not growers should be overly concerned. Thank you. Kevin, please feel free to fire any questions off, but if not, I'll just keep rattling all the ones that people are asking me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think the next one was something a grower asked you. So so why don't you go ahead with that one and then I'll I'll take over. So does the mild winter weather adversely affect the vine's ability to survive these cold temperature swings? Because we have had a pretty mild winter and then we're hitting some really deep lows that are coming in that have not we've not really seen yet this winter. So they were wondering, does that actually affect where the vines are going to be hardy to? Generally speaking, yes. So the, the more mild the early winter, the less hardiness the vines will, will acclimate to. Um, they don't gain maximum hardiness unless we have sort of deep cold early. That being said, the vines are pretty well protected for what we see coming. We did have that cold event that came right through around Christmas. We had that, that cold front that came through. And uh, for Western New York, most look pretty good. Uh, most of the varieties look pretty good to have survived that cold event. I would say the only thing that looks like it might have gotten close to damage is maybe Capsov out your way, got close to that minimum. That um, we're not expected to breach that minimum with this event. And so I wouldn't expect any additional damage from this one given 
the rest of the winter has been fairly mild. I do think it's a little concerning that the mild the winters are becoming mild overall because every year we get a cold event in February. This is sort of our uh, the Northeast personality. Usually it's around the 14th, the Valentine's Day. Uh, so this one's a little bit early or we will be getting another one. And so the more mild the early winter gets, the more dangerous this time period sort of uh, becomes because the vines just, they don't acclimate to their max potential. So they don't anticipate colder temperatures. They're only acclimating. I know answers. I'm just asking for growers. <laughs> They're yep. only acclimate, acclimating to the degree that it has had that thus far. Yep. So yeah, they, they like it. Yeah, they cue off of the temperatures themselves. And so if we clearly we they are gaining cold hardiness. So our winters are cool enough that they are gaining a decent amount of cold hardiness. They've gained more in past years when the winter's colder. And so they they have no ability to judge that they need to gain for February unless they have the proper cues. And I think one of the things that concerns me about mild winter weather and probably one of the things I learned more recently was sort of how that deacclimation cycle starts. Um, and so maybe you can answer that. But the follow up question to that was, when did we reach uh, sort of the chilling hours? Yeah, so chilling hours are a little bit tricky because there's lots of different ways of measuring them. But the, there's a couple different models that work pretty well for the Northeast. And we use the Utah model or the North Carolina model sort of as a gauge. And I know that probably doesn't matter much um, to the individual grower. Just know that these are estimates of what's going on in winter and, and there's always error in estimates. I looked at uh, what Portland has experienced this year, and you're at around 1,200 hours for Utah model and around 1,400 hours for North Carolina. Our research has shown that 950 hours is sort of the point where you need to start paying attention to warm events. And so we're past that point. Uh, here in Finger Lakes, we've got a little bit less than you. The, the Great Lakes are great because it protects your growers, but it also enhances your chill because it keeps things a little more mild. So what does that mean from deacclimation point? It means that right now, the vines are ready to respond to warm temperatures. If we do have a series of really warm temperatures, we're gonna see them lose cold hardiness in response to it. And they'll lose it faster now than a couple of weeks ago. That's just a natural progression of, of how they're using temperature to know when is it safe for breaking bud. So the more mild the winter, Typically, the faster we accumulate those hours and that switch happens earlier in the season. And because we always get our coldest weather in February, that's where the challenge comes uh, from a freeze damage point of view. We're not there now because we haven't warmed up in January. But had we had mild temperatures, we would be in a much worse place for this cold event. Right, right. So, so the interesting thing there is it it seems like even though we may be having experiencing some milder winters here and there that 950 chilling units is still so small that our version of a mild winter we don't reach it enough later in the winter to sort of mitigate any risk because you know like looking back at maybe the 80s or 90s well potentially some climate change was occurring but it wasn't immediately obvious to growers when they looked at their thermometer mm -hmm. um we were reaching that deacclimation 
there are those chilling units in mid-December or late December at the very latest. And we still had warm events, but there were just not enough of them to, to be cause for concern. So, so really the only variable is sort of how many warm events you have and how severe they are. Uh, and, and there's no sort of risk protection that happens, it seems like, right, from these, these uh, milder winters because it just – we just reach it too quickly either way. Is that right? Yeah, it's sort of a, the, the tricky thing is it sort of compounds. So if our early winter is mild, they don't gain as much cold hardiness and they accumulate chill faster, right? So they approach that sort of switch timing faster and from a state of less protection, right? So then if you have warming events in January, they're already less cold hardy and they're more responsive. So they'll lose it you know, comparatively across years faster. And that event is, that is what is occurring more and more frequently is that we're not gaining as much. We're still switching to the later dormancy type, which is less protected. And we get more of these false springs. Those compound to create a bigger problem. We're not seeing that problem this year, but we did get the mild winter component, right? So they're less defended. We didn't get the late, the false spring yet. So we're okay there. So as long as you are offsetting some of those compounding factors, our industry is mostly protected. It's those, it's going to be the problem where you have the, all of those factors line up. And we know that that will happen uh, to our region with a, a certain frequency. It used to be something like every 10 years, we'd have a, a bad sort of compounding factor in one of our two regions. I think it's going to speed up the the number of times we see that. And of course, we cannot be, I can't tell you what the winter is going to look like next winter. You don't have a crystal ball? No. I and, and we saw it, you know, last winter here in the Finger Lakes, it seemed like we were well protected. And there's sections in the southern Finger Lakes that got blown out. Uh, again, things compound and you have microclimate that contributes to it. And you are going to have certain pockets that are not ready for the return of these these sort of really cold blasts and right the good news this year is it looks like you guys are going to be okay it looks like we'll be okay here too we're supposed to get a little bit colder than you um but it's these sorts of events that we've definitely got to keep our eye on so my next question i think you actually already answered but if you want to add anything to it um sure. what level of concern do you have about further deacclimation compared to the compared to prior years, especially like the last 10 years? Yeah, I don't have any enhanced worry. Um, this is the this is the normal pattern of deacclimation. Um, I think the biggest issue will be how warm will, you know, March be. So the vines can lose a lot of cold hardiness. And if it's not actually warm, so like around, oh, I can't do it in Fahrenheit. It would be around like 36 Fahrenheit, so a real cool spring, they'll stay protected. They won't break bud at those temperatures if we have a nice, long, protracted, cold or cool spring. The issue is, is if we warm up more than that and they start to break in March and then we have our, our customary end of March, beginning of April sweep of cold, because we get those frequently too, then, then we're in trouble because the vines have lost all their defense. There's no way to know if we're going to get there right now. Um, but I would say there's no enhanced concern this year from a deacclimation point of view. All right. 
I have another question that our growers have been, it seems like we get this question almost every year and that's in regard to wind chill. Mm -hmm. So temperature and wind chill are two different things. And I would like it if you could make, and I know you're not a meteorologist, <laughs> so, but I appreciate you maybe elaborating that on that a little bit because the wind chill is projected to be lower than our LT50s for some of our varieties out here. Yeah, yeah, and it's confusing because we experience wind chill, right? So when we see that it's gonna be negative 30, that actually means it's dangerous for us to be outside because the perception of that temperature is so much colder than the actual air temperature. But wind chill is because we lose body heat when, when air moves off us, right? So it's not, so let's say it's zero degree uh, Fahrenheit. Again, we gotta, I always have to do the conversion in Fahrenheit. So let's say it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit, but the wind chill is negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. The actual temperature is 10 degrees Fahrenheit. We just perceive it as much, much colder because as that cold air and wind moves across our skin, it pulls the heat out of our body, right? Grapes don't have that. They don't have internal heat in. So the buds themselves and the canes themselves are not actually feeling temperatures of negative 20, they're feeling 10F, all right? So even so, it's bad for us, not for the vines. The only concern from a wind chill point of view that comes in with grape is if we had sustained high winds uh, at very cold temperatures, that's a very drying environment. And that can help dehydrate the vines, which is actually good because they would gain more cold hardiness as you dehydrate them. If you had it sustained over many, many, many days, many weeks, that drying could actually kill the vine, right? So if you, if you force out all that water and really dry the vine, you're essentially creating a drought stress and that causes damage that looks like freeze damage, but it's actually not freeze damage, it's drought. We don't typically see that. We, I did see that here in uh, Geneva in 2014-2015. Uh, we had about a month and a half where we never rose above freezing. It was just cold and dry. And some vines uh, gave the impression that they were dead because we couldn't track their cold hardness anymore. They had dehydrated so much. So the short of it is the wind chill doesn't matter to the vines in the same way that it matters to us. It's the the regular air temperature without the wind chill that you want to use as a gauge of uh, cold hardiness. Thank you that you explained that quite well. So I have one more. This isn't about bud cold hardiness. This is more about trunks splitting. So soil temperature initiates that warming of the roots and the water uptake through to rehydrate the vine. That's how we get to get to our bud break. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that vines are waking up earlier and pulling water into the trunks, therefore causing worry of trunk damage when this water freezes? So we've had people say we had warm, we didn't, it, around the Christmas time, like you mentioned, we mm -hmm. had that cold spell and then it was warm again, like almost 60 degrees and the trunk was warming up. So would that trigger the vines to pull up water and signal it's time to wake up? And now we're going to drop back down to these cold temperatures. We could see maybe some trunk splitting. Yeah, I would say the it's sort of another compounding of things going on so the i don't think the soil is warmed up enough yet for there to be root pressure where they would be taking up more water so i don't in the later spring they certainly are going to do that they'll be bringing more water up and if we had a freeze event at that point that would be harder to defend against so the more hydrated your tissues the harder it is to resist freezing i think from the concern of uh trunk splitting 
the primary issue there is that there is water in that trunk all winter long. And when you have very, very cold temperatures, but you have good sunshine, that you get that Southwest injury concept, right? So the, the part of the trunk that's in the sun actually thaws and some of that water is freed up and it's, it's moving around. It's not as a protected, in a protected state. And when the sun goes down, you lose all that thermal heating. And from the point of view of that part of the vine, the temperature drops from well above freezing to whatever the air temperature is on the backside of the vine, right? As it drops really fast, that water doesn't have time to reabsorb or be placed in a protected area. And so it freezes. And the, the tension that occurs between the back part of the vine, which is frozen, and the front part of the vine, which was just thawed and is now quickly freezing, that physically creates a tension that cracks vines. And so those events can happen anytime during winter that you have good sunshine, but very cold temperatures. You get this temperature differential that can cause trunk damage. That may have happened before the last cold event that came through. It could happen in this sort of event if you get enough solar heating. And it's hard for me to estimate what that would be without putting some temperature probes out. Um, I don't think that this winter has been particularly brutal from that point of view, so I, we should be okay. Um, but the, the soil water uptake part, I don't think we have to worry about that right in this portion. That's more once we get into March. Um, and again, that it's all root pressure, right? So the vine, the vine itself has no canopy, so it can't pull water up. It's just the passive movement of water into the vine that drives that water, if that makes sense. It does, thank you. We appreciate all the expertise that you bring to this and the questions to help our growers. So I would like you, if you would please, and this corresponds with the L, um, Lake Erie Regional Great Programs newsletter that just went out. We talk about all of this cold hardiness monitoring that we're doing and what you're doing with that data to make it useful to our growers and easy to access. So if mm -hmm. you would kindly tell them about your website, that would be fantastic. Sure. So for the past several years, the Western New York and Finger Lakes have worked together to collect cold hardiness data and share it with growers. And when I started uh, a year ago in January, they were making changes to the Cornell website where we used to share this data. Uh, if you Google Cornell bud hardiness, you can follow the links and you'll get to the app that I'm gonna explain here. That's the same path that you would have taken to get to the data in the last couple of years. Along with the changes to the website that Cornell was instituting, we had to change the format that we share the data for, for uh, accommodation compliance. Uh, people couldn't use the website to its full capacity in its old form. So with that change in rules, we decided let's make this actually interactive and useful to growers to select different types of data at as weather stations as close as they can to their own growing operations. And so thus we came up with this new app. Again, Google Cornell bud hardiness and just follow the links to this year's data and it'll take you right to the app. What we're doing is uh, in Western New York, we're collecting uh, cold hardiness data weekly from a set of cultivars. We're doing the same thing here in the Finger Lakes. We combine all that data and we've been hosting it on this website where you can click on different weather sites and see the data that, for example, Jen has been collecting for Western New York. You can see the data 
as we've collected it, as well as a couple of cold hardiness models that we've developed uh, in my lab. And so all of the effort is being made available weekly. Uh, as soon as we get it off the machine, basically we upload and we update this uh, application every night uh, between midnight and 3 a.m. It runs through a cycle and updates. And it gives you the opportunity to go in and look at the LT50 with a 50%, the temperature that we expect would kill 50% of the buds, the LT10 and the LT90, 10% and 90%, as well as a couple models. So if you want to click on a weather station that doesn't have data attached to it, so you don't live in Portland or you don't live in Geneva, but you want to see what we think would be going on in Branchport or, or uh, another location, I don't know, Jamestown, if you're growing grapes in Jamestown, you can click on this and our model will tell you what we predict for your cold hardiness would be for a, for a number of different cultivars. If you click on the, the icons for Portland or for Geneva, which is a little grape cluster, you will also see the raw data that we're posting. And what, what I hope you'll see if you click on this is that our models are doing an excellent job of predicting the LT50. So if you look at Portland and you look at where the vines are, you can see LT50 from raw data and model data look right on top of one another. And hopefully that gives you the confidence when you click on Jamestown. Since you don't have raw data, you can at least use our model to say, okay, the model says it should be this and it'll give you an idea of your damage potential. And so that's the interface that we've provided. It's much more interactive than the old way. You have to click on, you click on and select the varieties. You can zoom in on the graph. You can pick different weather sites. Um, it is a new application that is currently running on a, a personal server. So it does have a touch of lag that you have to be patient. I know in this day of instant clicks, that can be super frustrating, but we're talking about a lag of a couple seconds. If you just uh, pour yourself some coffee or if it's in the evening, some wine and click on it, it'll be a lot more enjoyable. It's not mobile optimized. You can open it on an iPad. You can open it on a phone. It's going to be much more accessible on the desktop version for now, but we are moving it to be hosted on the newest system with much more capacity. So if you uh, can give us a little bit of patience in this season to get it ported over there. It should be up and running. Thank so. you for that. I would also like to add, because I also use, utilize that website as well, but the first time I went out onto it, I was like, wait, what is going on? Because there's a Cornell flag that is mm -hmm. waving that tells you it's thinking and it's not the circle wheel of death. So right. <laughs> yep. So, you know, your, your screen hasn't frozen if you can see that, that banner waving. Right. Um, it, it should get much faster once we get this up on the cloud. It's just the uh, moving it over is not a simple task. There's a lot of coding that has to go into doing it. And so for this season, I think we're stuck with this version, but I would invite growers to go use it. And we would love to hear your constructive comments. Constructive. If you, if you like the old version, that's great, but we can't go back to it. It's just not in, we're not in compliance if we use it. So going forward, if there's uh, functionality or data reporting that you would really like to see incorporated, we'd love to hear from that. Um, the more, we can't necessarily do everything, but the more comments we get, the better we can build a functional uh, application. I have one if you're taking them right now. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> is there a way to hover over your station and just have all of the LT50s for cultivars that are populated pop up? Um, we, quick, easy. Partially. So you can't hover and get that. You have to select the station because we have to tell, you have to picture in the background, we have a database of something like 3,000 weather sites and all the LTE data that Jen, you and I are collecting, it's all access to imagine a massive spreadsheet. And we have to tell it which portion of that spreadsheet to grab for reporting, which is why there's a little bit of a lag. If you select it and then you go down to where the graph is, mm -hmm. you can select all data at the station and download the data. And you'll get a full table of every, you'll get all the model predictions and all the cultivars that are measured at that station in that table. Nice. We're working on a clickable, what I'd like to have is a clickable banner there or something. What you would get is an image basically of a table for the last week. We can't do it for every week of the season because then the table becomes so enormous, you can't see it. Right. But we could do it for one week back or two weeks back so that you could get a very quick snapshot of you know, who's the weakest of, of the ones that Western New York is monitoring, which is the weakest variety, which is the strongest variety. Um, so we can certainly work to implement that kind of interface. Thank you. Kevin, do you have any questions for Dr. Lando? So, I mean, one of the things this does is it gives the grower a lot more data than they had before. So I'm sure you're struggling with sort of how to project that in the most useful way, because there's just more stuff to look at. But one of the things that sort of popped out at me, and I don't know if it's unique to this year, but it does not seem like there's a lot of meaningful differences in our region between varieties that I would have expected. So like Riesling looks pretty good this year. It looks like it normally looks and Concord looks kind of, especially if you look at the LT10, which I know there's some noise there, Yeah. but um, you know, at the same time, in the Concord industry, we really want all of our buds. So LT50 is kind of like, you know, it's not like LT50 in some of the vinifera where you just you prune to compensate. You you have a distinctly different crop when you're at when you reach those levels. So so I do think some of our Concord growers pay attention to 10 and 50 and sort of kind of split that difference to see if they need to do anything. Yeah. So so is that unusual? And I just. Or, or is it normal and I just never noticed it because of the way the data is presented or is this unusual? It's this year. Okay. So we're seeing it here in Geneva too. Our Concord has gained much less cold hardiness than in, in previous years. And I think it's partly that mild winter. Um, we were just that. commenting in this morning in, in lab meeting about what is going on with Concord. It's It just didn't acclimate as much this year. Yeah. Jason, I have some thoughts on that as well. I'm taking it into management strategies. So not this past year, although there was still a pretty big crop out there, but the year prior was one of the biggest crops ever known to some of our growers in the Concord industry. And of course, with the market being the way it is, some people actually pushed their vines and really wanted. So these four vines were hanging these huge crops and they were putting their reserves and energy into getting that ready. So then Harvest was longer and took longer to get off on some of those. So the vines didn't have enough time, really, I think. And then some of them had, it was also a wet year, mm. had some very wet feet last season. 
So being able to recover may have some, we might be seeing some of those effects of the vine just being a bit more stressed than normal. Yeah, there's been the tricky thing with doing these sorts of uh, crop load uh, evaluations and effects on cold hardiness is that so many things interact with crop load, like the whole season interacts with crop load. And so it's really hard to partition what the contributing factor is for changes in the vine status. We know that there's been some studies looking at crop load that sometimes they show there's the crop load effect, sometimes they show there's no effect. We do know that um, elongated growing seasons, anything that slows the vine from shutting down properly is going to affect your at least your early winter cold hardiness. If you have the right temperature events, you may not affect midwinter, but that early curve can certainly be delayed by anything that delays the vine from shutting down. So fertilizing the vines, overwatering the vines. If the vines are not being able to go dormant because they're trying to ripen fruit, it's a little different than carrying fruit, right? So it's it's different from like a carbohydrate storage component. It's more about being able to shut down your physiology and store your water safely. I don't think we have enough data yet to know whether or not overcropping is gonna significantly change your cold hardiness. That being said, we don't have enough to say that it doesn't either. So I would say that given we're seeing it in Western New York and we're seeing it here in the Finger Lakes, that this winter itself is not harmonizing well with Concord's ability, right? They're just not gaining as much. That being said, I think they're safe, mm -hmm. but we've seen it here as well as in Western New York that some of the viniferas are surpassing Concord in certain areas. And that is a bit weird. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I personally think it's because we've had a very mild winter up until that Christmas drop. We know that hybrids do a better job of gaining cold hardiness than viniferas in that early winter if you give them right, the right temperature stimulus. And it could be that we just didn't get enough of the stimulus that Concord could use to, to get down deeper. If that, if I'm not trying to get too nerdy, but um, for the given signal that they were getting, they just didn't use it to their full effect. Yeah, I, and and I'm just speculating here, but it seems like we are having a winter that's not just mild. So we've had cold events. You know, I can think back to winters that just seem like just uncharacteristic for our region in the sense that we just don't get cold. And I feel like when you look back at that at least to my recollection, you might see, I don't know, Riesling at plus three, plus four, and then Concord at minus two, minus five. Um, and this has just been a very strange winter in that we have these cold events and lots of snow. And then like the next day it rains and all the snow goes away and it's warm again. So it, I, I mean, I wonder if it has more to do with just where Concord was evolved to grow and it wasn't in a climate like this, it was in a climate like our normal winters. Um, it would be interesting to see what those crop loads were. I, you know, I think those crop loads were very extreme in 2021 in commercial vineyards for sure. Uh, in 2022, they could have been again simply because they were so stressed out in 2021, they didn't have any pruning weight the following year. So even though we saw lower yields in some of those vineyards, the crop load still could have been crazy. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case where Jen's taking samples though. I, I, 
Do you have any thoughts on that, Jen? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like it would be as extreme, but. Not as extreme, but I can say the site is a very low spot that collects a lot of water. So that could just be that. Could have something to do with that. The roots were not. We're seeing it here too, though, in the Finger Lakes, right? So we're seeing it in, in, and the vines that we're, the Concord vines that we're collecting from are in a vineyard, but they are more of a showpiece for the vineyard than uh, production. It's it's a it's a row that's decoratively arranged in the vineyard itself of Concord, right? So this definitely wouldn't have been managed with a with a crop load intention. Right. Um, I di- I keep looking off screen, and I wanted the growers to know that I wasn't trying to be uh, disrespectful, but I'm actually looking at the model as we're talking just to look and yeah. Riesling and Concord are showing almost exactly the same LT50 with the most recent sampling for Western New York. Um, so it is it is weird to have them be that close. Um, I had another, there was another comment though that I wanted to, oh, I wanted to share with the growers so they know, um, in addition to this weekly monitoring that Jen's doing and that, that we're doing here in Geneva, we Jen and I also have a microclimate study, which I don't think the growers are totally aware of yet. It's right. We were funded this year to do it um, by New York Wine and Grape. And the whole concept is, is to figure out microclimate effects in Western New York and in uh, Seneca Lake. And so in addition to her weekly monitoring, Jen's group is also sampling 15 different Concord sites. We have temperature sensors out at the actual site of collection. And what we're looking at is if there is enough microsite, microsite variation to explain differences in damage uh, from year to year. And so it's really taking a fine toothed comb to figuring out if our monitoring efforts and our modeling efforts are widely applicable or we need to be tweaking things. And so we have not finished analyzing that data. We're still collecting it. But I wanted the growers to know that we are paying attention to the weirdness in our data and trying to remedy it uh, on the front end. So take a more proactive approach to figuring out why sometimes you get damaged and sometimes you don't. Um, it's been very interesting to see uh, the differences in temperature, humidity, and pressure in a region, but very dif- uh, sampling across the entire region. It's been really cool. Differences from the lake to the escarpment. Yes, and just a shout out to all the gr- grower collaborators for <laughs> not pre-pruning off any of our sensors and leaving <laughs> us some wood to collect from. <laughs> Yeah, same thing for the Finger Lakes folks. Uh, it's amazing to be able to use these the growers' resources uh, to get at these questions. Well, thank you for joining us. Kevin, do you have any other questions? I have no other questions. I do want to thank Jason for joining us. I think this is, I mean, almost always very much so the most interesting research, certainly that takes place in the winter that we can yeah. share with growers, <laughs> but, but really good information overall, not just the winter. So um, I, I think Efforts to make this information more usable are, are, I assume, much appreciated. It's something that certainly works for me. And I can see down the road, um, you know, we saw it in Ohio. So I can see down the road if climate change continues that we start to implement mitigation risk practices and to try to do that efficiently from a business standpoint, because none of them are free and some of them cost a lot. We need we need data to make those decisions. So, yeah. And all of the data that's being collected, we should let everybody know that all the New York data 
is being continuously pumped through our model algorithms to keep tweaking them with real-time data. We are also branching out to gather data from Michigan, Pennsylvania, Quebec, Ohio, Wisconsin. And I wanna make it really clear that's not so that they don't have to do their own work. It's because when we sample across such a wide climate area, we can do a much better job of predicting how our industry will have to react in, in the coming years. And so there's, there's a ton of work that's going into the backside of this from lots of people who are outside of New York and their data collection and their willingness to share it is making this better for New York as well. And so um, again, constructive comments, tell me what you need to see. We will work to implement them. Um, and yeah, thank you for having me on and giving me the opportunity to chat. I this is an awful season to try to do one-on-one -on -one engagement because nobody wants to go stand outside in the freezing <laughs> cold. And uh, I really appreciate being a, given the chance to chat with you guys. Thanks a lot, Jason. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you guys all hopefully next week. Uh, we are doing a better job of getting together once a week. So, uh, so hopefully we'll see you next week. Any questions, anything you want covered, please let us know. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, and that's all I have. Yeah, have a great week, everyone.